It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you into the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, July 26, 2012. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn, and uh, in my father's normal seat, uh, well, there's a different person tonight, Monty Overton from the here at College U is with us tonight. Monty, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be here. Good to have you here. And uh, Jeff is behind the desk, and uh, we'll get Jeff's mic turned on. Jeff, glad that you're here as well. Well, thank you. Nice and, to and, uh, and we do have my father on the program tonight, and he is calling via cell phone tonight. Uh, he is in Indiana preaching this week. And, uh, Dad, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jacob. Great to be with you. I hope I can make some contributions from long range tonight. Looking forward to it. Well, uh, we're looking forward to your com- com- comments as well. And uh, Monty has uh, got his uh, bags uh, fully stocked with tricks tonight, too, so he's got lots of comments. And uh, so I think we should have a good discussion as we can consider- continue a discussion from last week on some cliches that Christians should never use. Christian Piot in his uh, blog came up with actually 29, I think, uh, uh, 20, how many was it, Monty? 20. Seven, I, I think. Uh, 29. 29 things that we should never say. We talked about 13 on the program last week, and we've got uh, that would make uh, 16 more to go this week, so we'll have to go a little faster this week. And we'd like your thoughts at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com, and the chat room to your right of your viewing window. Again, if it says me in the chat room for you, if that is not, uh, you're not logged in. Follow the instructions at the bottom of the chat window, and you will show up as a a guest or with your name, if you prefer, in the chat window, and you can comment with other listeners. Well, we might as well go ahead and get in on the discussion tonight. Uh, We're talking about uh, some cliches that this writer says we should never use. Monty, the first one on the list tonight is, are you saved? He says, I've addressed the theological understandings of hell and judgment in other places, but regardless of whether you believe in hell, this is a very unattractive thing to say. So I guess he's saying... You shouldn't ask someone, are you saved, because it's unattractive. He says, first, it implies power and privilege, a power and privilege imbalance. That is, I'm saved, but I'm guessing you're not based on some assumptions I'm making about you. And it also leaps over the hurdle of personal investment in a relationship, straight into the deep waters of personal faith. If you take the time to learn someone's story, you'll uh, likely learn plenty about what they think and uh, believe in the process. And who knows, you might actually learn something, too. Rather than just telling others uh, what they should believe. Well, Monty, what about the idea that you shouldn't tell, ask others if they're saved? Well, he says it's assuming that it's based on some assumptions about about them. Well, the Bible clearly teaches us, and I know that's something he didn't like hearing as I read through last week's the clearly teaching thing. Yeah. But the Bible clearly teaches that we'll know someone by their works. Correct. And so we can probably tell by someone's works whether it's a valid question to ask if they think they're saved or not. But when you get down to it, we have an, an example of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, where he asked some people that he met, 
they were referred to as disciples, but they were disciples of John. He asked them if they'd received the Holy Spirit yet, in effect asking them had they been saved. And so I feel like it's a valid question because of the proved example of the Apostle Paul. All right. Uh, how about you, Dad? Do you got any comments on that? Well, I think there's got to be some way that we open the door to start a conversation someone about you know, uh, spiritual things that relate to God and so forth. I don't know if that's necessarily the best expression to use, but I'm not afraid of that expression. Uh, and, you know, we need to be able to bring that topic up. Uh, th- this guy in the blog is suggesting that maybe it's a harsh or impersonal way to, that we should find out more about a person before we jump right into a question like that. And that may be the case. All of that is judgment. And one of the things that we commented about last week, Jacob, is that this guy is very harsh in his judgment about others and what they do. Uh, I, I would say that you got to leave this up to the individual uh, to, to understand the moment and what would be best and how best to break the ice and start a conversation. That This might be one way to do it. There might be other or better ways in various circumstances, but I'm not going to discard this as a possibility. I'm like Monty. It, it seems to me that that's what Paul was saying when he talked to those men. And, uh, well, interesting, uh, I think we're getting, we got a little bit of a bad connection there with you, uh, getting some noise. So I'm going to, I'll mute your line and you may need to call us back. Uh, in, uh, Jim in Kentucky says, uh, for obvious reasons, this is flawed. It, uh, this, the questioning, are you safe? So Jim would say, agree with the uh, blogger to some extent. He says, uh, for obvious reasons, this is flawed. If one responds by saying yes, then what do you do? If, they're, if you question their salvation, then you automatically make them defensive. It would be better to create a dialogue where you discuss redemption in the process of being saved. That's an interesting uh, take on it by Jim. Well, I heard a fellow talking one time when, that was talking about how to uh, talk with people and, and work up situations where you could study with them. And his idea was when you ask them if they're saved or if, if it comes up like that, and they say yes when you think when you have a question about that, then ask them to relay to you their salvation experience. Yeah. So so you're not putting them on the defensive. If they say yes, say oh, okay, tell me about your salvation experience, and then you can that can lead off into a study. Maybe if their salvation experience is not like what we find in the Bible, then we can proceed with that to study about that type of thing. Okay. Rather so than putting them on the defensive, you just lead them along with questions to accomplish your goal. So you get around the, the potential problem that Jim sees with that yeah, I question. I don't think it has to be a problem. Okay. Uh, here is a email from uh, Randy in Swartz Creek, Michigan. Uh, children, uh, God needs to ask them uh, themselves that question. Children of God need to ask themselves that question every day, why we, uh, why we can fall away. It is very important to maintain our relationship with our Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus. Peter says uh, in Second Peter 2, 1 through 10, Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Uh, and verse 11 uh, says, uh, For so an entrance will be supplied to you uh, abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 of Second Peter tells us what we should do, what we should add to our faith. I think it's also good to ask, it is also good to ask someone uh, we may think is looking for salvation or interested in the Bible uh, or would like to know more about God. So, uh, interesting. Uh, appreciate that uh, comment from Randy. And then Don in the chat uh, in Antioch says, uh, if we're not 100% sure about our salvation, we should never ask anyone else about theirs. I do not believe anyone is truly saved until they draw their last breath. And he references Matthew 10, verse 22. 
Matthew 24, verse 13, and Mark 13, verse 13. What about that? Can we say that we're saved before we draw our last breath? The Apostle Paul did. Okay. And I believe that if we're following what the Bible says, doing what the Bible says, the way the Bible says do it, then we can know that we're saved just by the same way that we know that God loves us because the Bible tells us so. Uh, we sing that song with our children, Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. Right. I believe that we can also know that we have salvation because the Bible tells us so because it tells us what we have to do in order to be saved. And if we're doing those things, then God is faithful and going to keep his word to us. Okay, Dad, what about that idea that we shouldn't say that we're saved before we die? Jane, you know, we talked about that last week. Uh, that was one of the the earlier cliches that this uh, blogger had mentioned. You know, if you if you died right now, would you go to heaven? You know, he, he, he said we should never be asking that question because nobody knows for sure. As we discussed that last week, that's a pretty fine line. I'm like mommy that, that God certainly wants us to have confidence in our salvation, but at the same time, we can never grow complacent and act like we got it made, our ticket is punched, and nothing could happen to, to, to cause that to be different. So uh, th- this question that we're dealing with right here, are you saved, I, I would have to agree that w- with the blogger that it may not be the best way to open a conversation with someone, but there's got to be somehow to do it, and we need to be working at developing our skills bring conversations around spiritual things. That's a good point. And uh, Chris in Atlanta seems to agree with you. He says this is a legitimate question. We may not want to lead off with this and may not want to ask it in this way, but we should ask questions to get people to think about their eternal fate. And so uh, good comments from Chris. And then Ramona in in Dallas, Texas says uh, yes. I guess uh, uh, yes, she uh, don't really know her what she's answering there. Yes, you should ask this question or yes, she is saved. Uh, but we do appreciate her feedback on that. And so generally people are saying that uh, not necessarily bad to ask that question, Monty, in contrast to what the blogger says. The next comment uh, that he says and the, the statement he says we should never make is that the Lord never gives someone more than they can handle. He goes on to explain it. What about people with mental illness? What about, about people in war-torn countries who are tortured to death? What about the millions of Jews murdered in the Holocaust? And this also implies that if really horrible things are happening to you, God gave it to you. Is this a test? Am I being punished? Is God just arbitrarily cruel? He concludes, just don't say it. Just don't say that God never gives you more than you can handle. Monty, your thoughts on that? Well, I wouldn't say that God would be giving me more than I could handle. Uh, I think the, the examples that we see in the Bible was possibly that God would allow us to be tested. It's not that he tests us. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Uh, I think the example we can see to, to verify this of how this works is we look in the book of Job. Job, is, The Bible says that Job was a righteous man mm-hmm. and that he was upright. But the devil wanted to tempt him and apparently have his way with him. And for some amount of time, at least, God had forbidden that from happening because the devil made the comment, well, you've built a fence or a hedge around him. You won't let me do anything to Job. Mm-hmm. And so God tells the devil, okay, you can go and puts limits on him to what he could do. Uh, and the devil wasn't allowed to go beyond those limits. So it's not that God is, uh, is giving us more than we can handle or, or testing us or tempting us or whatever, but he allows the devil to do that. But it's not a bad thing for us to be tested. And uh, maybe it would be a better way to say that is that uh, you can make it through whatever you're dealing with right now. And you can do so in a faithful manner to God. You know, he makes the comment about what about people uh, with mental illness. 
Well, it's a very good chance that people with mental illness aren't capable of knowing that they're mentally ill. I mean, it's not a challenge. It's not a something more than they can handle because they're mentally ill. They probably don't have the capability of knowing about that kind of thing. It talks about people in war-torn countries who are tortured to death. But we have accounts in the in the New Testament and in the Old Testament how God's people were, tortured you might death. would say, in a regular basis, tortured death. Uh, we was talking in a lesson recently about, I believe, Wednesday night's invitation. Wade mentioned how people, the Hebrews talks about people were sawn in two. Uh, that would be torture to me if somebody took out some kind of saw right. and proceeded to saw me in two. Right. Uh, so all these things are things that have happened to people in the past. The Bible describes has happened to people that even remained faithful through it. Yes. And when you get right down to it, uh, Jesus was abused and tortured also and, and murdered. So And he was able to endure that temptation without sin so we can do the same. All right, Dad, what about you? I guess you conclude as well. You can have, You can never have more than you can handle. Yeah, God's going to help us handle whatever comes our way. We have that promise that's not an instance from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, there's something wrong with the way this blogger has worded this, suggesting that God sent the the, the, the Holocaust upon the Jews. Yeah. You know, that, this, this sort of smacks of the idea that you want to blame God for everything that happened. A lot of what happens in the world is because of sin and wickedness that's been introduced by Satan. If you want to lay the blame at the right place, lay it at Satan's feet. God gives the strength and power to deal with whatever comes our way. We have that confidence, but I don't think it's right to to put things like the Holocaust uh, on, on at, at the Lord's feet. That's not his will. It wasn't done in accordance with his will. All right, quickly, Jim in Kentucky says, whereas there's no scripture that exactly states this, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 does say, there are no temptation taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. In this sense, the burdens we deal with in life are common to all, and the promise is that we can deal with those problems and still be faithful to God. Uh, Randy in Michigan says, The Lord never gives someone more than they can handle. He references 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. When we are tempted, we need to be looking for the way of escape. God will provide it, but we won't see it unless we are looking. So we appreciate those comments from Randy. Don in Antioch says, The scriptural... This is scriptural only for the elect. And again, Don believes in predestination, but encouraging to all who are trying to live a godly life if presented in the appropriate way. All right, so uh, we would disagree with Don on his uh, Calvinistic uh, interpretation of the scriptures, at least in regards to predestination there. And Chris in Atlanta says, uh, God will not allow a Christian to be tempted with something he cannot handle, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. I may face a situation I cannot handle like five people ganging up on me and beating me and killing me. If we are in a right relationship with God, then ultimately we will not get more than we can handle. Even if we are killed, then we are with him, which is the ultimate reward. And so maybe from a physical uh, standpoint, Monty, you may get a, and you may have more than you can handle physically, but you will not have more than you can handle spiritually, and that's the promise uh, from God. And uh, Ramona agrees that uh, that it is... She says, uh, yes, definitely in the Bible, the idea that the Lord never gives you more than they can handle. We would, we'd have to dis- discuss that idea that the Lord's given you uh, all of these things, but at least we do know that we can handle whatever situation we're in. We definitely know the Lord will provide us the way out, the scriptures say right. so. Right, we have confidence in that. We need to take a break, and when we get back, we'll continue the discussion. We only got two done, so we got to hurry. We're on a roll. we'll uh, continue the discussion after this don't go anywhere the virtual bible will be back after these messages after these important messages we'll be back to take your comments email them during this break 
I'm Greg Gwynn, a host of the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks for joining us for tonight's program. The Virtual Bible Study is presented weekly by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Each week on the Virtual Bible Study, we simply engage in a study of God's Word in an effort to better understand it, better understand how God views us, and better understand what He wants from us in our lives. We're not studying any creeds. We're not studying any books written by men. We're just studying the Bible. And we're trying to study the Bible alone without any of our opinions or wisdom mixed in. We're only interested in what our Creator has revealed to us in his word. We realize that we're fallible and cannot direct our own steps. As a result, what we think or feel doesn't really matter. All that matters is what God has said. So that's what the virtual Bible study is all about. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Thanks again for joining us tonight, and we hope you'll make plans to join us every Thursday night for the virtual Bible study. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 3.17. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight as we talk about uh, cliches that a blogger says we should never use. The next one on the list tonight is America was founded as a Christian nation. He concludes, honestly, I find it hard to believe we're still having this conversation, but here we are. Anyone with a a cursory understanding of history understands that we were founded on the principle of religious liberty, not just the liberty to be a Christian, and that many of the founding fathers explicitly were not Christian. He references Thomas Jefferson. So what about that, Monty? Were we founded as a Christian nation? Well, I agree with him on this point. I don't believe that America was founded as a Christian nation. I'm not sure that it would ever be what we would, or ever has been, what we'd really call a Christian nation. And I'm pretty sure without doubt, that it's not right now. Yeah. I believe we've become, at the very best, an exceedingly wicked people. Yes, yes. Uh, that, that is true. Jason in Pennsylvania says, this statement is not true. What Christians would rebel against their government? That means the, the, the country was founded by uh, rebellious people who were not in harmony with God's will at the time. Uh, by rebelling against the British government. I can't entirely disagree with that either. Yeah, uh, he, he goes on, this is what uh, the colonists did towards Great Britain. Also, most of those who found the nation uh, more than likely were not Christians, according to the Bible. George Washington was an Anglican, for example. These men may have said things in public about God and Christianity, which are the quotes that get all of the press in, quote-unquote, quote, Christian circles, but their private writings and journals at times contradict the things they said in public to appease the public. The nation may have some uh, Judeo-Christian values behind some of its laws and policies, but the only way the nation can ever be titled a Christian nation is if everyone is a Christian. This has never been the case. The only Christian nation that there is is the church. Add your thoughts about that. Well, I I agree with what's been said. I I think it's foolish to even talk about America as a Christian nation. I don't think it was founded that way. Certainly not that today. And And the Lord doesn't have physical nations on earth today. He has a spiritual kingdom, and so, uh, you know, I don't know why we would say that. I, I would agree. There's no, there's certainly no purpose in us making that expression. It doesn't serve any purpose, and it's not accurate, and so I, I would agree with the blogger. Let's, let's drop that cliche. I, I've never used it. I don't know. I don't know why anybody would. And I don't think uh, that uh, Jesus wants there to be Christian nations. He says in John 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. Jesus wants everybody in kingdoms everywhere to be Christians, but he's not looking for Christian nations today. Monty? I I agree with you. Oh, you're looking like you don't. No, I I was... Okay, okay. I'm I'm with you. All right, you're with me. Uh, Jim in Kentucky says... uh, 
America was founded as a Christian nation. Again, whereas the founders never had idea of considering America as a Christian or as Christian, many, if not all, the founders were men who believed in God and the Bible. They were flawed men, but nonetheless, they advocated a belief in God and His sovereignty. Uh, so, uh, so uh, he's saying that there were some principles that uh, some biblical principles that were involved in the founding. Uh, Rod, uh, this is from uh, Michigan. Randy in Michigan says, uh, "Sad to say, America was never a Christian nation." But it did at one time or sometime follow some biblical principles. I also pray that it would begin to again. We would uh, pray that it would as well. And uh, Don in Antioch says, We should never say this because America has never been and never will be a Christian nation. Most people do not even know that some of the so-called founding fathers, including Thomas Jefferson, were deists. Thomas Jefferson believed Jesus was a good philosopher, but not the Son of God. He took a razor blade to the Bible by removing the miracles that Jesus did and all references to him being the Son of God and a virgin birth. What was left was the Jefferson Bible. For years, copies of the Jefferson Bible were included in the packet given to new members of Congress. Interesting comments by Don. And then Chris in Atlanta says, I agree with the author on this one. America was founded on the idea of keeping government out of religion, not religion out of the government. He is correct that some of the founders in this nation were not Christian. And finally, Ramona says... Yes, it was founded as a Christian uh, nation. So Ramona would disagree with the blogger. Let us know your thoughts tonight. The chat room has been quiet, and the phone has been quiet, and as well, the email tonight. So we'd like to hear from you on the program. And uh, Jeff, any thoughts so far behind the desk? Not really, except for the next one, which we'll get to shortly. All right, let's get to the next one. Uh, Number 17, uh, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. What about that statement, Dad? What do you think about that? He says you shouldn't use it. He says, if there ever wa- uh, was a top-shelf conversation killer, this is it. You're not inviting any opinion, response, thought, or the like. You're simply making a claim and telling others to shut up. Also, I've yet to meet someone who takes every word of the Bible literally. Every, everyone qualifies something in it, like the parts about, um, about keeping kosher, wearing blended fibers, stoning adulterers, tossing your virgin daughters into the hands of an angry mob. You get the point. What about that uh, statement, the Bible settles, says it? I believe that that settles it. What do you think about that, Dad? I think it's been pointed out. Uh, I've heard people say that that, that saying is, is out of order. Uh, it should be the Bible says it. That settles it. I believe it. Uh, that, that probably is more accurately the way we should be conveying. In other words, the Bible's true whether I believe it or not. Uh, and, and the Bible settles what's right and wrong, whether I accept it or not. But on this business about nobody believes it every word literally. Well, none of us believe it every word literally because the Bible contains figurative language. Yes. Uh, and the Bible so, says so, it does. You know, yeah. yeah, so for him to make a point that nobody accepts everything the Bible says literally is is obvious because the Bible contains figurative language. Plus, the things that he mentions about kosher food, blended fibers, stoning adulterers, he's, he's, he's blending Old Testament law with New Testament law. We don't live under that law any longer. We believe it was once God's law uh, that there were certain dietary restrictions and so forth. They're not our, our law today. We live under the New Testament law of Jesus Christ. But he's making, he, he's built a straw man there, and then he, he thinks he's real clever to tear it down. But, you know, he, he's accusing us of believing what we don't believe. Jeff, what are your thoughts? Um, I think it's not uh, good enough just to say the Bible says it. I think we need to know where it says it versus like, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 15, 
Um, it says, be ready to give an answer of him that ask it. And also 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration. Okay, good, good. Uh, Monty, your thoughts? Well, one of the examples he gives here about tossing your virgin daughters to the hands of an angry mob, uh, I guess I missed that part of the Bible where that was a command at any, at any place to do that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, it is interesting. We do believe what the Bible says. If it says it literally, uh, that settles it, and we believe it. If it says it figuratively, that settles it, and we believe it. Uh, we believe what the Bible says, and we don't uh, take exception to what the Scriptures teach, uh, properly understood and interpreted. Jim in Kentucky says uh, this may be uh, one which, again, though not in the Bible, is certainly one which produces an idea akin to what is taught in the Scripture. This is faith, what God says, and what I am to believe. Thus the matter is concluded. And uh, Randy in Michigan says, uh, as long as the Holy Word of God is handled aright and we come to a proper understanding, I will say amen. So Randy agrees that this is the way to handle it. Don in Antioch says, we should rarely say this because it is never settled. That is why we have so many denominations. Hmm. Well, we shouldn't, Don. And uh, we should say that if the Bible says that that settles it and all of us come to agreement and harmony on what the Bible teaches, so I don't know exactly where Don is headed with with those comments. And Chris in Atlanta says, I don't like this statement. It should be the Bible says that that settles it, period. Uh, whether I believe it or not is irrelevant. But the more I read this blog, the more question, I question the author has actually read the Bible. He clearly makes or takes many things out of context, particularly the last sentence of this statement. It just appears his Bible knowledge is superficial, and yet he is speaking as such an authority. So appreciate Chris for his feedback. And Ramona concludes, if the Bible says that it does settle it, she says yes. So appreciate uh, those comments tonight. Any other, Monty, before we go on? No, I just I have to agree that if the Bible says it, that's the end of it. And like Chris says, if we, whether we believe it or not is really irrelevant. It's still settled matter. Yeah. It's our job to understand it properly. But it's still what it is. Sure. All right. The next one, uh, Monty, we talk, we're talking about before the program. Uh, it was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Uh, the blogger concludes this is a little joke to some Christian that some Christians use to assert the superiority of opposite sex unions over same sex one. But here's the thing: if you really believe the first and only two people on the planet are at one point were Adam and Eve. Who did their kids marry and have babies with? This, my friends, is incest. Happened again if you believe Noah's family members were the only survivors of the Great Flood. Just just demonstrates the selective moral blindness many of us Christians have and seriously compromises our credibility about anything else. Well, Monty, this is just another example where he does not uh, believe the Bible. We see the fact here that he he doesn't believe the biblical accounts of, of Adam and Eve biblical accounts of the flood he disregards all of that the same things that jesus uh gave credibility to in uh the new testament therefore he is uh basically telling us he doesn't believe anything about what the scriptures teaching he wouldn't believe jesus either well that's what it really boils down to when you take it take him at his word here i get the feeling from this the way he wrote this that he doesn't have a problem with homosexual relationships uh one thing when it says he calls this it was Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve a little joke. Well, I don't consider it a joke. I consider it a statement of fact and a principle that is taught by God in his creation that he created man and woman for each other and that's how he intended for it to be. And if you know, since it appears that he thinks homosexuality is okay, obviously he hasn't read and believed Romans chapter 1 where again as he didn't like the thing that the Bible clearly teaches, he didn't think that was the case. 
but I think Romans chapter 1 clearly teaches homosexuality is a sin. All right, absolutely. Dad, your thoughts? Well, I, I probably don't, wouldn't use that expression, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, because that, that's almost making light of a serious, sinful condition that exists in our world today. Homosexuality is such a pervasive problem, and, and of course, it's, it, it's deteriorating the morals of our culture. So I don't think it's anything to make a joke about, but I think we should definitely speak out against homosexuality. It's let it, it, it is part of letting our light shine, Matthew 5, 16. Uh, and by the way, this business about incest, it was not incest when Adam's sons married their own sisters. It's what they would have had to have done. There were no other females for them to marry. But at that time, there was no law against incest, and, and there was no there was no threat that marrying a close relative would cause uh, genetic malformities and so forth. Yep. The laws of incest came along later, and, you know, it, it was not immoral at the time. And for him to, you know, claim that it was just shows, again, his ignorance in the, in the development of the Bible story. Well, and again, it also shows that he doesn't understand the story of the flood because he says it happened again if you believe Noah's family members were the only survivors of the great flood. But as I recall... The account of the flood, uh, uh, Monty, uh, Adam's three sons brought their wives. There were eight people on the ark, and therefore the descendants of Adam's sons, Adam's grandchildren, could have, I'm sorry, Noah's grandchildren, could have married their cousins. Again, not necessarily something we would uh, uh, think is a great idea today, but it wouldn't have been incest uh, to do that. Well, I agree with what Greg said. As well as I can remember in the Old Testament accounts, I don't see anything about incest mentioned before the law of Moses, and then that was just given to the Israelites. That wasn't something that was even given to the Gentiles. Okay. So I don't think that would have been an issue. All right. Uh, our commenters, our, our replies, uh, an email tonight. Uh, Jim in Kentucky says, uh, uh, the pro-sodomite crowd obviously hates this one. Yet Jesus did say that God made them male and female, Matthew 19, verse 4. God did purposely create one man and one woman. Randy in Michigan says if it wasn't for the the fact that the homosexual movement in this world is running rampant and being pushed on everyone, it wouldn't be said so much. God is very clear in his holy word about homosexuals. It is a subject that is not hard to understand. We would agree with that. And Don in Antioch says we should never say this or chuckle when someone else says it. Homosexuality is such a terrible, terrible sin that it should never be trivialized by referring to it in a cute or comical manner. Or manner. That's uh, those comments go along with what you said, Dad. And then Chris in Atlanta says, "This is an accurate statement. He may be way off uh, with his example of Adam and Eve's children and Noah's family members, or he says he is way off. God is very clear about one man, one woman, one lifetime." And Ramona uh, says in Texas, "Yes, uh, very yes, but I wouldn't say it just like that." So again, she would maybe say that that's not a good way to s- express the idea that God does not condone homosexual relations. All right, we need to go to a break, and we'll get a bullet point in, and we'll get your comments on the other side of the break. Uh, We'd like your comments tonight on the phone, 877-381-4567. Don't go anywhere. We continue right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. From time to time, you might hear someone described as high maintenance. It could be a man referring to his girlfriend or a husband discussing his wife or vice versa. The phrase might be used in regards to any person who shares a relationship with others. The meaning of the expression is this. This particular individual requires constant attention. 
They expect and demand that others will attend to their every whim and expectation. Typically, these people will not do anything for others because it seems that it never crosses their mind to think about what someone else might want or need. Their total emphasis is on me, me, me. Unfortunately, there are some members of the church who are high maintenance. These are the folks who are always complaining about things that they feel should have been done for them. I was sick and no one came to see me. I was overlooked when someone was selected for a certain position. I have never been invited to so-and-so's house for a meal. I wasn't included when some others made plans to do this or that. And so on it goes. A little investigation will show that this high-maintenance individual has never done any of these things for anyone else. Usually these folks are not particularly friendly, almost never show hospitality, don't visit the sick, never see about the needs of others, and generally ignore any situation that doesn't involve their own interests or desires. They are self-centered and full of self-pity. Such folks need to learn to look outside their own circle to realize that self is not the most important thing. Paul said it this way, quote, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America. And I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. Back to the pro on the program tonight, talking about cliches we should never use, and we're going to kick it into high gear now, Monty. So keep uh, we'll keep the comments uh, relatively brief. Jesus was a re Democrat or a Republican. Oh, you wanted to comment. You had your you were ready to go on this. And Jesus was a Democrat or a Republican. It seems to me that when pressed, Jesus was happy to keep church and state separate. Remember the whole thing about giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and giving to God what is God's. And if we choose to, we can pick and choose antidotes to support Jesus being a liberal. He cared for the poor, was anti-death penalty, or a conservative, challenged, the government, challenged government authority, practiced sexual purity. Jesus, purity. Jesus was Jesus, and if it was as simple as pegging him into one of two seriously flawed contemporary forms of government, I can promise you I would not be a Christian. Well, quite frankly, it doesn't sound like you are a Christian, by the way, by your expressions uh, so far. But uh, Jesus was a Democrat or a Republican. I think he misuses the story of giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and giving to God what is God's as far as uh, uh, you know, that g story goes. But Monty, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, he talks about that the, how the liberals care for the poor and their anti-death penalty, and which typically in our nation people that refer to themselves as liberals politically are anti-death penalty. But actually the statistics show that people that are politically conservative uh, do more benevolent, giving and charitable giving by at least two to one than what people that are politically liberal do. Uh, as far as anti-death penalty, in John chapter 19, verse 11, it was clear that Jesus said Pilate had the authority given to him by God or established yeah. by God yeah. to exercise the death penalty. And then if you go to conservatives over here, he's talking about conservatives and reference them as challenging government authority. Well, if a person is religiously conservative, they're going to obey Romans chapter 13, verse 1, where it says to obey the civil governments. And as far as conservatives practicing sexual purity, I would say that was that was uh, something a conservative person would do. But obviously he doesn't really understand the definitions of even liberal or conservative. Well, but he's also saying that Jesus was anti-death penalty, which he was not. No, he's Jesus was not anti-death penalty. And he's also saying that Jesus challenged government authority, which he did not. He did not. And that's what the Jews were claiming. And I guess uh, this blogger would have been there with the Jews uh, trying to get Jesus crucified by saying that he did challenge government authority because he didn't. He never did. In fact, he told us we should submit. And so, again, the blogger doesn't understand uh, the scriptures on, on the, this matter. Dad, your thoughts? 
Well, I, I agree with you guys. This guy must run in different circles than we do because I've never heard anybody try to claim that Jesus was a Democrat or Republican. Yeah. I mean, he, again, I, I think he's trying to build a case against Christianity in general by making up false accusations that have no basis in, in real practice. Yeah, right. Uh, Jim in Kentucky says uh, Jesus. he's never heard this statement. He says it goes without saying Jesus was apolitical. He wasn't involved uh, in politics. Uh, 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 Randy in Michigan says there are some things that should never be said, and this is one of them. So Jim would a uh, rich, I'm sorry, Randy would agree uh, Don in Antioch says, this is silly. I've never heard anyone say that. However, I have heard people say that those of one party would never uh, change to the other party, even if the other party's candidate was Jesus himself. Uh, but this is taking the Lord's name in vain and something we should never say. Uh, so um, Don disagrees with the statement. Uh, Chris in Atlanta says, I agree that this is a false statement, but I cannot fully agree with all of the supporting reasoning as Neither can, as we have the same problem. He states Jesus was anti-death penalty. I just can't find that in the Gospels. I think he's drawing his conclusion from John chapter 8, verse 7. But again, his understanding of Scripture seems to be very superficial. And Ramona says, no, you shouldn't say that. So uh, appreciate those comments. We'll quickly go on uh, to the next one. He says, it is an, uh, insert your sin here. He says, this could be applied to any sin. People will inter- we'll use... Uh, reference any some certain sin and say it is an abomination in the eyes of God. Almost always, when this phrase is invoked, it is, has something to do with sex or sexuality. Seldom do folks care to mention that divorce and remarriage is in the, that list of so-called abominations. Also, there are several words translated in English Bibles as abomination, many of which don't imply the sort of exceptionalism that uh, such a word makes us think of today. And while we're on the thread of things Scripture says God hates, let's consider this for, uh, this from Proverbs. He references uh, the six things that the Lord hates, uh, yea, seven are abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, and false, uh, false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. I'm going out on a limb and, and propose that telling someone that who they are or what they are doing is an abomination to God is tantamount to sowing discord among your brothers and sisters, and this, according to the text above, is in itself an abomination. We don't have any problem with saying those things are an abomination. Monty, do you? I don't have any problem with it all. The Scripture says they're abomination. God says they're an abomination, so I'm, I'm okay with that. But his comment saying that trying to teach people the truth here is sowing discord among your brothers and sisters and that this is an abomination, I would argue that teaching the truth is promoting unity and not discord. We're trying to all, when we understand the truth, then we're all trying to understand the same thing and go in the same direction. So that's unity. That's got nothing to do with discord. All right. Jim in Kentucky says, true, all sin is an abomination before God. We must be careful not to declare certain sins more abominable than than others before God. And uh, we have uh, Randy in Michigan says, uh, God has revealed his will to all mankind, and the study of it will reveal what is an abomination in God's eyes. So... Again, our respondents have no problem saying that and saying that the Scripture support it. Uh, Don in Antioch says, by all means, we should say this is about all sin. For some sins, such as homosexual and adultery, we can't say it enough. So Don says we should say that certain sins are an abomination. And uh, Chris in Atlanta says, we must realize that sin is sin. There are no degrees of sin, and all sin is an abomination. If we are going to, or if we are quoting a Scripture like he did in Proverbs, then yes, this is an appropriate phrase. But we must never give the impression to others that there are lesser sins that God will overlook. We appreciate those comments, and that's a good thing to remember as well. Dad, your thoughts? 
Well, I agree. There are things you can say. It's just uh, he, he doesn't want sin specified, and he says it's so in discord when you specify sin. If that's the case, then Jesus was guilty of that. The inspired apostles were guilty of that. He doesn't want sin to be identified. It's necessary to identify sin. Uh, we're never going to get lost sinners to seek salvation if we don't help them realize the sinfulness of their sin. Yep. And so we got to talk about sin. All right, the next one, it is good that we're coming up on a break because there's going to be some soapboxes here, I think, that we want to get up on. Uh, but uh, here's the next one, and this may be the most outrageous in the list, and we've had several so far. He says we should never say that Christianity is the only way to God or heaven. He said, you may believe this with your whole heart, and I'm sure you have the scriptures at the ready to support it. But consider the possibility that either those you're speaking with think differently about this, or they haven't put much thought into it, that what you're, uh, that what you're saying feels like an ultimatum or a threat. There, Yes, there are texts to support a theology of exclusive salvation, but there are also some to support a more universalist notion of salvation. He references John 1, verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And think about how such a statement might sound to someone who has just lost a loved one who is not a Christian, at least by your standards of what that means. And theologically speaking, it opens up a whole Pandora's box in answering for the fate of all those who live before Christ, who never hear about him, and so on. He says you shouldn't say that Christianity is the only way to heaven. What do you think about that, Monty? Well, in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 30 and 31, Paul told the people there that they would have to repent of their unbelief. These particular people were idol worshipers, and he was telling them that uh, now God was commanding all men to come to Jesus, his son that he had sent and that they would be judged by Jesus. So Paul had somehow had the foolish notion that Christianity was the only way to, to God or heaven. Uh, so I don't see how he could, this guy could think otherwise. Uh, Romans chapter 14, verses 9 through 12, teaches us that Christ is Lord. Yeah. Uh, see, it says, To this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So Jesus obviously had the notion that Christianity was the only way to heaven. Okay. Yes, he did. And the the disciples did as well in Acts 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And they probably had that idea because what Jesus said in statements like John 14, verse 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now, again, the blogger, in his uh, great wisdom, has said that we should not say that Christianity is the only way to heaven, but Jesus said that no one comes to the Father but by him. Dad, uh, as as this blogger, I mean, should we continue even to look at what he said if he can't even get it right on this one? Yeah, well... He's like so many, even self-pronounced Christians who do not want to uh, claim that Christ is the exclusive way to God. But Jesus said it. If, if it's it, he, Jesus, either is what he said, the only way to the Father, or he's not. And these people have got to get over that. I mean, we got if, if we don't believe that that's the truth, then we might as well just fold up our tents and slide off into the darkness because. We have no purpose in this world if, if it's not to proclaim Jesus as the only way to the Father. That's right. Uh, they're saying that Jesus is a liar because Jesus said clearly that he is the only way. 
Uh, Jim in Kentucky says, uh, though not stated in words, it is stated in principle. Jesus himself said, I am the way, John 14, verse 6. Peter declared that there is no other name given under heaven, uh, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is a true concept because it is found in Scripture. Uh, Randy in Michigan quotes John 14, verse 6 again. And Don in Antioch says, this is a true statement if we're talking about the tr- about true Christianity But the word nowadays is so corrupted that it could be misleading. For example, Catholics, Mormons, and many others of various denominations refer to their beliefs as Christianity, and many of these will not make it to heaven. I would rather repeat, not as a cliche, but as a serious statement, the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And Chris in Atlanta uh, concludes uh, John 14, verse 6, Jesus says no one comes to the Father except through him. How do we do that? We repent, confess, and are baptized and added to his church. So, yes, Christianity is the only way to heaven. Again, he butchers John 1, verse 9. That verse is not teaching universal salvation. Reading on down to verse 12, it was only those people who received him that he gave the right to become children of God. So appreciate those comments uh, from Chris. All right. Go ahead, Mike. He seems to have some concern about answering for the fate of all those who lived before Christ. Well, Paul answered that in Acts chapter 17. When he said in, in previous times God winked at or overlooked this kind of thing. I don't under, really necessarily understand exactly how that works for God to do that, but it, Paul says that's what he did. But he also says it now commands all men everywhere to repent and turn to Jesus. And then he talks about answering for uh, people that would never hear him and all that. Well, if we've, we don't answer for the fate of others. Yeah. I, I have no control over the fate of others. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 and also Ezekiel chapter 18, expresses that clearly that we are responsible for our own selves and not for others okay all right let's take a break and we'll go to the top of the hour and uh if my math is correct we have eight more to go and so we've got a lot of work to do and we've got to go fast so don't go anywhere we'll continue the discussion right after this are you listening there's going to be a test on this stuff stay tuned the virtual bible study will be right back after this hi i'm jack coleman a member of the college view church of christ with a suggestion for you and your family Why not turn off the TV on Thursday nights and gather the family around the computer for an hour of in-depth Bible study? A virtual Bible study always involves subjects of importance and interest to serious Bible students. So, why not join this Internet Bible study group every Thursday night? My name is Rick Harris, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. I hope you'll join me and many others in this weekly Internet Bible study group. Be sure to listen every Thursday night. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The virtual Bible study. Take it away, guys. All right, we're back on the program tonight, and we'll uh, cut short the comments about the College U Church that brings you this program. Find out uh, more about us on the website, uh, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We're talking about uh, cliches that uh, a blogger says we should never use, and we've concluded, uh, Monty, I think so far that the blogger doesn't uh, know much about the Scriptures, or at least about applying them in our lives, because he's been way off on most of the things he's said so far tonight. Uh, the next uh, statement he says we should never use is, when a do- God closes a door, he opens a window. Like some other cliches, that uh, this implies that when something unexpected and usually bad happens to you, God did it to you. I know it is well-meaning, but it is not helpful in some cases. What about someone who feels like a door has closed on them and there's no other hope in sight? That per- uh, person may benefit more from a, c- a compassionate ear, a loving heart, and a simple what can I do to help much more than some phrase that may or may not have any basis in reality. Well... What do you think? Well, what comes to my mind on this about God closing a door and opening a window, I'm not sure about the window part. But we have an example in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul was wanting to go 
and I forget exactly where he was wanting to go, and it said the Spirit forbade him to do that, and then he had a vision about someone from Macedonia calling to him, so he went to Macedonia and preached there. And so you could, in effect, say that God had closed the door to this one place and opened, uh, gave him an opportunity in another, but I don't know that we could say that's a universal, that we could apply that universally. Uh, we just know that it happened in that one case. Let's see what our respondents say. Jim in Kentucky says, This seems to be popular with the Calvinist crowd, those who believe that God controls every aspect of a person's life. The providence of God is such that God is providing for us all the time. However, God does not reveal everything that he is doing. We can only know if it was actually God closing a door and opening a window as time has passed, and we see that when one thing was eliminated, another thing became available. So uh, Jim says we should be careful about saying that. Uh, that statement gives Randy uh, in Michigan lots of questions. He has uh, no response for that. And then uh, Don in Antioch, uh, he's, uh, he says, uh, I guess this could apply to certain situations, but why not use normal everyday language instead of a cute little saying? So uh, Don, uh, again, would not think this was a universal statement. And Chris says, I am not sure on the origin of this saying, but it, but taken in proper context, if God did close the door on me, he would not open a window but knock down a wall for me to pass through. So I guess, uh, I don't know. Maybe Chris says he wouldn't want to go through a window. I don't know. All right, Dad, your thoughts. Uh, I agree. We're going to have to hurry, but I, I agree. It's a, it's, it's a silly expression, I think. Sometimes people are prone to make silly expressions that are pretty much meaningless, and and one like that probably doesn't have any value. Yep. Okay. Uh, how about the next one here, Dad? Uh, your thoughts? God helps those who help themselves. He says. Uh, uh, he, he says. Go ahead. He says this is not in Scripture, and you're not. You may not be able to find that expression exactly in Scripture, but the concept is there. Uh, that, that God expects us to do what we can for ourselves, that, that he will supply what we are unable to provide for ourselves. But the idea that God helps those who help themselves, while maybe not a direct quote of Scripture, is a concept, I believe, the Scriptures teach. All right. Uh, he does make an interesting comment. He says uh, Benjamin Franklin penned this in the Falmer's Almanac in 1757. Be very, very careful when quoting something you think is in the Bible. And even if it is, be very careful in how and why you quote it. Uh, or at people, people don't need more reasons to resist or resent Scripture. Let's not add things that aren't even there. You do have to be careful with some of these sayings, Monty, because they've been repeated so many times, people assume they were in the Scriptures uh, when the Scriptures don't necessarily say that. If we're going to represent something to be in the Bible, as Jeffrey said earlier, we need to be able to give book, chapter, and verse for it, and it definitely needs to be there. That's right. Uh, Jim in Kentucky says, God help. Uh, in one respect, this is true. God desires it that his servants be active, and he provides the means for us to serve him. However, when dealing with issues of salvation, we depend on God to provide for us because we cannot help ourselves. We can only follow his commands in order to receive salvation from him. Uh, and uh, Randy in Michigan says, uh, Colossians 3, verse 17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. So he says we should do what God says. And uh, Don in Antioch uh, says, I don't think we should be saying this because it also implies that God does not help those that do not help themselves. To the contrary, God helps everyone, whether they help themselves or not. Um, and so interesting uh, comments uh, from Don. Chris says, for the most part, I agree with the writer on his assessment of this phrase. God offers help to everyone. We decide whether or not to accept it by obeying the gospel. All right, let's go on because we are running out of time. Uh this uh, writer says we should not say that God, perhaps God is causing something negative 
to get your attention. It is God's way of telling you that it is time for, and he says, fill in the blank. So you should not say that God's causing this to get your attention, that it's time to do something. To me, this comes off as speaking on behalf of God. It seems to me that the better thing to say is, if anything is, is there any good that can come from this, or what wisdom can we find in this experience? But better than this is, as I've said before, being quiet, being present, and being compassionately loving, let God speak for God. Do you think it's okay to say that maybe God's doing this to get your attention? I wouldn't necessarily say that God was causing something negative. I would say that possibly he allowed it. And we have examples of this in the Old Testament because he sent prophets to warn the Israelites that you're, you're living poorly, you're not following God, you're not keeping the commandments, and told them clearly that they were going to be taken into captivity. That was something bad. But he allowed these foreign nations to take them rather than causing them, I believe. And the point of it was... Uh, as far as telling you it's time for, it was time for them to repent and turn back to God. But God had prophets telling them that this was what was going to happen. So God himself gave them instruction on that. But as far as in our life today, I can't necessarily say, because I don't have any inspired revelation on the matter, that God is called, allowing something to happen to me to get my attention over something. Yeah. All right. Okay, Dad, your thoughts? I, I was just going to say exactly what Monty said. We'll go quickly, but, but I agree with Monty. We don't have the advantage of revelation today to, to say with certainty God is sending this. So you know, we should not be saying that because we don't know for sure that any given thing is directly from God. Uh, Jim in Kentucky says, makes me think of for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth. Hebrews 12, verse 6. Again, it is often hard to know if the events which unfold in our life do so because they are the product of God or Satan. It is how we react to those events which determine our level of faithfulness. Paul knew that this thorn in the flesh was something directed by Satan, which God would not remove. So Paul said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. God allowed him to learn to deal with it in a way to strengthen his faith. And uh, Roger, uh, Randy in Michigan says, uh, look at what happened to Job. All that happened to him, God allowed Satan to do to Job. All that happened to him, God allowed Satan to do to Job. Job was never told why all this was happening to him, our heavenly Father, test us from time to time. Job learned to trust Jehovah our God as we should. We read this in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Chris in Atlanta says he agrees with this assessment that the author uh, makes. All right. There for the grace of God I go, uh, the author says, is the next statement we should not use. We should not use this statement there, but for the grace of God I go. This suggests that the person who is the object of whatever misfortune you're referring to is not the recipient of God's grace. The thing is, at least as I understand it, grace isn't grace if it's selectively handed out like party favors relating to someone and even sharing common experiences or how you should, you could see yourself in their similar situation is one thing, but making it like sound like you're not suffering because of God's grace while they are is just unkind. I guess I don't, I'm not familiar with this phrase. Well, the... The way I've always heard the phrase used myself, wouldn't he's saying it has to do with whatever misfortune they're referring to, but I would have said it had more to do with a, a misbehavior, and I've heard it used basically referring to somebody that was particularly evil and saying, but there but for the grace of God go I. Is, uh, what they were saying is because of God's grace, I've been taught properly and responded to the gospel, and, and I'm not acting that way, but if it hadn't been for that, I probably would have. That's your thoughts? I just think this is an old expression that just means uh, I'm grateful that, that I'm not suffering the same things that this other individual is suffering. I, I don't think it implies what this blogger says, that it implies 
I just think it's an expression to say I'm glad that, that I have not had to suffer those things. All right, Jim in Kentucky says uh, this seems to be another Calvinistic reference, the idea that God's grace reached into my heart and saved me because if God had not predestined me to be saved, then I would be lost. This is unscriptural. Chris in Georgia says, I do not care for this statement either, but he has missed the mark on grace. God's grace is available to all if we obey him and follow his commands. I do tend to agree with his statement that reads, making it sound like you're not suffering because of God's grace while they are is just unkind. I have always jokingly said when a football coach thanks God for the victory, I wonder what the other team did to make God mad and cause them to lose the game. All right. And uh, as we go quickly to the next statement, this statement he says we should avoid is, if you just have enough faith, fill in the blank will happen to you. Talk about setting God up. Who are we to speak that, to what God will or will not do in others' lives? Sure, if you have a story of personal experience to share, ask for permission to share it. But be aware that someone in the midst of struggle may not be in the place to hear it. But fulfilling promises like this uh, is above our human pay grade. As my dad used to say, don't write checks. Uh, well, never mind. Uh, so um, he says you shouldn't say that if you have enough faith, something will happen to you. I agree with him. Okay. Oh, you agree with him? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I, Jacob, yeah, yeah. Jacob, I agree too. Oh, there's two. Boy. Uh, Jim, I think, is going to uh, agree as well. He says, again, this presumes we can direct the events of our life. Faith is not built upon only good things happening to us. Faith is built upon our willingness to endure the trials of life by living the way God says we should, even when times are hard or we are persecuted. And as with the reference above to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, not everything in life happens the way we want it. Sometimes God determines that we must deal with disappointment. Chris in Georgia says, I do not like the statement. Uh, I can have all the faith in the world that I will become a trillionaire, sprout wings, and fly, but that just isn't going to happen. We are to have faith that God keeps his promises and will operate in the manner in which his word tells us he will. And so I think we are in unison in our agreement with uh, the author, which is a first, I think. Uh, number, uh, the next one he says is that we should not say, I don't put God in a box. This actually is a favorite of many progressives. This comes off as pretty arrogant, in my opinion. You're implying others put God in a box and that your theological perspective is superior because you don't. The problem is, anyone who believes in God puts God in a box. Yes, your box may be different than others' boxes, but unless you share the mind of God, your understanding of God is some uh, constricted and dimly illuminated view of what God actually is at best. Bonnie, should we say we don't put God in a box? Well, I'm not really sure what that necessarily means, that I don't put God in a box. But in his reference to unless we share the mind of God, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 16 teaches us that we have the mind of God, and it's revealed to us by the Spirit. Okay. So We can know that. We can know that. All right. Uh, Jim in Kentucky says this is a reference made by those who are without faith. By it, they mean they believe God is not limited to, in, to what he can do, whereas we know God is not limited in what he can do. He has limited himself and what he will do and has said so. He will not save sinners. He will not fellowship with darkness. He does not hear the prayers of sinners. He will not save those outside of the body of Christ, etc. In this sense, we cannot let God out of the box when he is the one who created the box, his will. And uh, Chris in Atlanta says, I do not agree with his logic, but I have honestly not thought much about this statement, nor have I used it. I am not really sure what someone would mean when they say this. I would ask them for clarification and then address it after I understand what they're trying to say. We've got two more to go quickly before we conclude. Insert someone's name and say they are a good, God-fearing Christian. First off, this phrase, God-fearing, is a real turnoff to many Christians and non-Christians alike. Though some understand God as a thing to be feared, a lot of folks simply do not relate to that image of God. 
And if you happen to be using the word fear as a synonym for respect, consider the likelihood that your audience probably hears fear as fear. I guess he's saying we shouldn't fear God. And that's why he doesn't like the statement. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 tells us to fear God and keep his commandments, that yeah. that's the whole duty of man. So it's yeah. our obligation to fear and respect God. That's right. It is, a, And it is a blessing to, be, to fear God. Uh, Dad, your thoughts quickly. Yeah, he, he's, mis- he, he's not understanding the meaning of the word. So, he's, he, again, he's still a strong man. Okay, uh, Jim says, uh, hopefully anyone who is a Christian is God-fearing. It would be redundant to say that one is a Christian and God-fearing. Chris says, again, I disagree with his logic. Used in proper context, I do not have a problem with this saying. Understanding, of course, only God knows a person's heart. And finally, to conclude the list of things we should not say, God is in control. He says you shouldn't say God is in control. This raises a fundamental problem, a very fundamental problem of theodicity, uh, which uh, most Christians I've met who say this are not necessarily uh, prepared to address. Theodicity. You know how to say that? What is that? Theodicity. Theodicy, Theodicy, I guess. Theodicy. 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 Okay, that sounds good. Yeah. is the dilemma between belief in all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful God with the existence of evil and or suffering in the world. And the other problem is that if you believe that human beings have free will, a central tenet of most Christian thought, it needs to be recognized then that uh, in itself is a concession of control by God. And like other phrases I've mentioned about God's role in daily life, we... Uh, be careful in tossing this one around, telling someone who was raped, abused, tortured, neglected, etc., that God was in control during that experience likely is enough to, uh, uh, to incent that person to turn away from the concept of God forever. Monty? Well, I believe that God is in control, and I believe the Scriptures teach us that. But in his idea here, talking about people that were raped, abused, tortured, neglected, etc., uh, I get back to the idea and the, what the Bible teaches is that Jesus was abused, tortured, neglected, abandoned by his friends, rejected by his countrymen, and murdered after an unjust conviction. Uh, but God was still in control because he had prophesied and predicted and said this was going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's see what uh, our respondents say. Jim says God is in complete control. However, he has given us a part to play. We are partakers in his plan, Colossians 1, verse 12. And that means we are not robots, but are active in obeying his will. And Chris in Georgia says, God is in control, and we do have free will. If God was not in control, then I would not follow him. How could I trust in his promises? I do agree that someone who has just suffered a traumatic experience may not want to hear the statement, and we need to use discretion. Dad, your thoughts finally before we conclude. Are you coming to me, Jay? Yes, you. Yeah, yeah. The, God is in control. We believe that, but God also gives us free moral choice. We're free moral agents. So he's he's confusing two concepts there. I think. All right. Um, well, and we should conclude with some uh, statements that Don added. He says we ought to consider these if we have time. We don't have time. We'll read his list, and I don't think we would agree with necessarily all of them that Don adds. That some statements we should not say. He says we not should not say that blank went home to be with the Lord. Um, he says, he's the reason for the season should not be used. He, this is interesting. He says, we should not use our God is an awesome God. He says, we shouldn't use the statement, ain't our God a good God. He said, we shouldn't use the statement, let's give God a hand. He shouldn't use, we shouldn't use the statement, people from all denominations will go to heaven. We shouldn't use the statement, have a blessed day, or God bless you, or on fire for Jesus, or I'm using my talents to serve the Lord. We shouldn't use this, the phrase the Bible Belt, and we shouldn't use the phrase WWJD. So we would agree with some of those that Don has listed. I think we might disagree with at least one of those. 
uh, that he's mentioned there in his list. But uh, interesting uh, discussion, Monty, and I think we've had uh, we've learned some things uh, in our examination of these uh, somewhat off the wall uh, comments by this blogger. Yeah, I, I, it's caused us to think a lot, at least, and, yeah. and to, to answer his his objections. Well, thank you for coming and being with us tonight. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Dad, thank you for being with us on the phone in Indiana tonight as well. Thanks, Jacob. Good and, job. Any for, any other comments before we close? Well, we had to hurry through some of that, but it, all of it's thought-provoking, and uh, we should just, I think we should be prepared to deal with those kind of criticisms of what we believe in practice, be ready to defend what we really believe, and accurately describe our faith. You know, there were some pretty uh, bizarre and outlandish statements there, but not at all uncommon among those who claim to be religious today. And that shows us, I guess, the condition of the, the world that we live in. Right. All right. Uh, Jeff, thank you for being behind the controls. Appreciate you being here tonight. And we appreciate you for being on the other end of the line. Thank you for joining us in our study. If you have any thoughts about what we've said or if you have any suggestions for future topics on the virtual Bible study, we would encourage you to get in touch with us. Use the email address, questions at collegeu.com, or call us at 877-381-4567. Make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the virtual Bible study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.